What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We are in a moment of massively high debt levels and massively high inflation. Inflationary pressures weren't caused by economic policies. A lot of them were caused by a pandemic. We can't lose sight of that either. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. There is so much speculation right now about the Department of Justice, and it's under a haze of questions. The burden is on Congress to come up with an immigration plan that's comprehensive. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The conservatives on the Supreme Court are skeptical about the Biden administration's plan to cancel student debt. Kevin McCarthy is waiting for Joe Biden to call him about the debt limit. And Ron DeSantis' book is a seller. He's hitting the road, but we're not calling it a book tour or a presidential campaign. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick from Bloomberg Government, filling in for Joe Matthew. This is Sound On. We've got a bunch of good guests. We're going to talk to Greg Storr, Bloomberg's reporter on the Supreme Court beat about the latest today, as well as Sandy Baum from the Urban Institute. Congressman Jody Arrington is going to call in. He's the new budget chair. We'll get the latest on debt limit talks. And, of course... I've got Rick Davis and Jeannie Sheehan-Zano, our Bloomberg politics contributors, who are going to give me a book report on the courage of freedom. We are joined now by Greg Storr, who covers the Supreme Court for Bloomberg, to give us the latest on today's arguments. Greg, really uh, happy to have you on to get your insights. It sounds like uh, things are not breaking the Biden administration's way. How much skepticism was there today? Well, a, a fair amount. Of course, it's a uh, conservative-dominated court, and they were generally, uh, perhaps even entirely, skeptical that the president and the education department have the authority to do something so sweeping based on a, a, a statute that was enacted uh, back after 9-11 for uh, what many thought was a, a narrower purpose to let the Secretary of Education make some minor changes to uh, student loans rather than trying to wipe out hundreds of tri- uh, billions of dollars. Now, I understand there are two relevant challenges here. Can you briefly walk us through, I mean, is one stronger than the other or are they both absolutely in play? <laughs> one is probably stronger than the other, and that's because the, the, if there is an Achilles heel to these challenges, it's the question of, is there a right to sue in the first place? So one challenge is being pressed by six Republican-controlled states, another pressed by two individual borrowers who say that they didn't get, they're being deprived of the full benefits of the program. And, you know, in both cases, they have to be able to show that they're suffering some sort of injury from this Biden administration policy. And the, the states, the conventional wisdom is, have a stronger argument on that front. And there was some pushback from particularly Justice Amy Coney Barrett among the conservatives as to whether the the states do have that legal right to sue over this policy. So if if the policy survives, that's probably going to be the reason is that the court would say, uh, no, this is not something where the states were injured and therefore they can't sue. 
So uh, am I understanding it correctly that maybe the skepticism on the merits or on the substance of this decision and even the legal merits may not be uh, relevant? It, it, it sounds like the key X factor here is that question of whether they have the right to sue. Is that, is that a, a toss-up, a 50-50 call, or where do you think that stands? That's a fair way to describe it. I don't think I would, at least the, you know, that's sort of the key question in the case. Uh, I don't know that I would say 50-50. Um, I didn't hear any other conservative other than Amy Coney Barrett suggesting that they didn't think the states had standing. And, you know, one vote's not going to be enough. Uh, in addition to the three liberal justices, the administration's going to have to get two conservative justices. So while that might be their best shot, uh, it's by no means a, a probability based on what, what I heard today. All right. Well, then on the substance itself, I, I understand a few different um, complaints came up. What, what would you say was the headline uh, that, that sums up or the, the most important um, critique by these conservative justices of the program? Well, the Supreme Court over the last few years, this court has uh, talked a lot about something called the major questions doctrine. And the idea is basically if the president or an executive branch agency is going to do something with really big practical uh, and political effects, we want to see a clear authorization from Congress before we're going to let them do that. And that was sort of the sense that was pervading over this, that uh, the conservative justices didn't seem to think that that clear authorization was there in the statute. What the statute says is, the Secretary of Education can waive or modify some provision in, in the, the student loan laws uh, in order to keep people from being in a worse position because of some national emergency. And the, the, the kind of the core question, the biggest question on the merits is whether that phrase waive or modify could, could you know, ex- extend this far. And it didn't seem like the conservatives thought that it could. Wave and modify. Uh, those are, are two key terms I'm going to really be looking into. We'll get a dictionary and see exactly what they mean. Greg, thank you so much. Sandy Baum is joining us. She's a senior fellow at the Urban Institute, very knowledgeable about these student loan issues. Uh, Dr. Baum, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious just off the bat if you have, uh, the, if you think the Biden administration has any compelling answers to these concerns raised by the conservative justices about the the size of this action uh, and the legality of it. Right. Well, first, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Um, The thing is that there are really two sets of issues here. One of the legal issues, and then there's the policy issue. And the legal issues are really quite separate. I mean, is there, um, do do the plaintiffs have standing? Um, I think that's very questionable whether they have standing, uh, but I'm not a lawyer. And the same is true. There's a big difference of opinion about whether the president has the right to do this, whether that's justified. Um, Those questions, again, are controversial legal questions. But the question of the policy and whether it would be a good thing to do this loan forgiveness is a different question. And it's hard to know whether the justices are actually separating these two questions, right? Right. and, of course, um, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be very, uh, not just disappointed, but have their lives quite disrupted if the promise that was made to them that their debt would be forgiven, then, you know, it, it, this doesn't happen. Uh, and so that's a problem. The Biden administration designed this as carefully as possible to make it as fair as possible. 
But that said, it's a questionable policy overall to do blanket loan forgiveness. There are a lot of people who need their debt forgiven. It's not clear. I mean, many borrowers don't. Many borrowers are affluent college graduates who don't need debt forgiveness. So this is probably a political move, not the best public policy. But now we're in the middle of it. It's a very different thing to stop it in the middle. Well, tell us more on on your stance on the distributional effects and and, and why you seem to think this isn't necessarily perfect public policy. Well, it it would be a good thing to get the – about a third of all borrowers owe less than $10,000. And to get them off the rolls before we restart payments would probably be good for them and good for the system. That said – uh, student debt is disproportionately held by people in the upper half of the income distribution. That's because the people who borrow a lot of money are people who were in college for a long time or in many cases went to graduate school. There are many people who are struggling with all kinds of financial problems who say couldn't afford to go to college and don't have student debt or who worked a lot while they were in college and so didn't borrow or who just finished repaying their student loans. So there are a lot of inequities in making this 10000 or $20,000 handout to this group of people as opposed to another group of people who are struggling a lot. I think there are a lot of questions about it. It's easy to find people who need this help, but it's also easy to find people who need the help and won't get it or who are going to be given a handout here who really don't need it. Well, and Justice Neil Gorsuch uh, seemed to touch on similar issues. Again, there's a difference between the legality and the the merits of the policy uh, in its own right. Uh, But Justice Gorsuch had this to say about who this benefits and who it doesn't. People who've paid their loans and people who are not eligible for loans in the first place, and that a half a trillion dollars is being diverted to one group of favored persons over others. So, uh, Sandy Baum, uh, I guess to close, what what do you? I I, I shouldn't ask you what you you expect to happen, uh, but you you've touched on the fact that this is already in place. Can you can you I guess put a finer point on what what does this mean for an individual who is wondering what they are going to have to pay back or not pay back? Right. Well, for individuals who were really cheered by the idea that they were going to have ten or $20,000 of their debt forgiven, and for many of them have their debt wiped out, this is going to be a really difficult um, thing if, if the Supreme Court says, sorry, we're not going to do it. Um, so it will be difficult for many people, and it's a, it's a mess that it has happened in the way that it has happened. But again, the Supreme Court should not be trying to decide whether this is good public policy. The Supreme Court should be thinking about whether these people really have standing to sue and whether the president has authorization to to implement this policy or not. Right. Sandy Baum from the Urban Institute, senior fellow at the Urban Institute. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's bring in the panel. We've got Rick Davis and Jeannie Sheehan-Zano, our Bloomberg Politics contributors here. Uh, we've got a lot of policy, politics, legality to discuss. Uh, Jeannie, I'm, I'm just curious where you stand on the characterization of this that we heard from Sandy Baum, that this really has become a mess because of that uh, that I- indecision, the unclear nature uh, of how this is going to affect people's finances. Has this become a mess? 
It has become a mess, Jack. I thought that Sandy put it beautifully. You're talking about one in five Americans with this type of debt, 60, 60, almost 70% of them, I think, under 40. And we hear that if the Supreme Court doesn't support the Biden administration and repayment is due, it'll come due 60 days after the decision. The decision probably, as we assume, comes in May or June. That is going to be a big mess. But the weirdness of the politics here is that you can hear inklings of Democrats saying we may win even if we lose because nothing's going to anger young people and get them out to vote potentially in 24 for Democrats than if they are forced to pay this back. And it's a big number, $430 billion worth of loans. Yeah, this seems to be an issue with a lot of enthusiasm. Generally, the public polling seems to be divided. Rick, what's your takeaway on, uh, especially if this, this gets blocked by the Supreme Court, how does that play in public politics? What's the response in America across the country? Yeah, it's very hard to tell like what the demographics of the, you know, 26 million people who've already applied for the uh, for the break on their on their loans looks like right now. And as Jeannie points out, I mean, you know, over 40 million are affected. That's a lot of people. Uh, and, and so there will be, I assume, some uh, kind of uh, impact politically as it rela- relates to this. Now, if, if you're conservative and you're looking at, you know, how young people vote, and this is probably predominantly people under the age of 35, <clears throat> you got a pretty good idea where that demographic is headed on a good day. And so uh, I think that you're, you're, you're probably not putting much of a hole in the bottom of the boat uh, as far as uh, trying to keep Republicans on board. Uh, I would say, too, you know, the one thing that this court is looking at a lot uh, uh, since the conservative takeover is the separation of powers. You know, has the presidency become more powerful than it needs to be? And is the will of Congress being thwarted in the process? So in addition to, as Sandy said, like trying to figure out what the will of Congress was as it relates to the standing law, the question then is, you know, would would this Congress, you know, would a Congress approve of this? And if not, why would they let the president do it? And so I think you're going to see a lot of cases where this underlying Uh, theme uh, tends to exert itself. And I would think this court is looking to roll back some of the powers of the presidency. Well, there's an important point there about the powers of the presidency specifically using uh, emergency powers. That was something that the justices got into and spoke very skeptically of. Um, I'm wondering if it's something that the American public thinks very directly about. I mean, Jeannie, if, if, if conservatives go saying, look, we don't want to mess up your finances necessarily, but we had to rein in the emergency powers of the presidency. Is that something that resonates with the broader public? You know, I think it resonates with a swath of the public. I don't think the broad public is going to be thinking about the HEROES Act under which they they maneuver to reinterpret that and give the president this power. But I think it is a, an argument to say the power presidency has, as you know, Rick just said, gotten too powerful. We have to rein this in. So that may work. I think the more um, sort of impactful argument is going to be the one Gorsuch made, which is about fairness and equity. The idea that some people took loans, but some people didn't. Some people weren't eligible. Some people paid back their loans. How is that fair? And that's one that seems to resonate. resonate. And it even resonated, you know, ironically with Joe Biden. He was the one slow to this and, and sort of maneuvered his way there with Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders and others pushing for this. 
He didn't find his way to it very quickly, and it wasn't only until right late last summer before the midterm that he did this. So, you know, he was sensitive to that argument, and so I think the fairness argument is the one that politically will resonate, but I'm not sure that's how the Supreme Court is going to decide this. I think they may decide it on the separation or the standing grounds. Right. One other thing I'm curious about is I was looking at the Supreme Court approval rating, not that that's necessarily as relevant as the president's. They're not running for office. But that got down to 40 percent last year, uh, pretty low uh, after the news of the Dobbs ruling. Uh, Rick, do you think that if this is such a motivating issue for some people, does this uh, if they strike this down, does it have much of an effect on any sense of legitimacy or public views on the Supreme Court itself? You know, that's a that's a great question. I, I think that, that in the backs of the Supreme Court justices' minds, they will contemplate how they build back the integrity of their institution because I agree they were at the lowest ebb of their, their historical uh, favorabilities with the American public at the time of the Dobbs decision. Um, rarely do we see chain link fences surrounding the Supreme Court. This is not the look that the justices want. And so uh, my sense is they are, they are intent on building back that credibility. Whether this case is going to resonate uh, to that degree, I would be surprised. Um, you know, there's a large degree of this is the PhD Debt Retirement Act, right? As uh, Sandy Baum pointed out, uh, this is uh, going disproportionately to people who stayed in school the longest. And right. uh, so uh, it, it's not a slam dunk for the court to say, you know, that, that by uh, – releasing uh, the uh, case on this and allowing the uh, debt forgiveness to go forward, somehow there's some kind of popular revolution that will take place that will be good. Coming up, we're going to talk about the courage to be free. Ron DeSantis' book is uh, selling. He's not on a book tour. He's traveling and talking, and he has a book that some people are buying, but it's not a book tour. We'll keep it going with the panel to discuss the courage to be free and what that means, of course, for 2024. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Today, the corporate kingdom finally comes to an end. 
there's a new sheriff in town and accountability will be the order of the day. That was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis yesterday. He signed a bill granting a new state-appointed board the responsibilities of Disney's Reedy Creek Improvement District and named a slate of conservative leaders. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with our panel on Sound On, Rick Davis and Jeannie Sheehan-Zano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, here's what's up with Ron DeSantis. He, he has had his back and forth with Disney. He's got a book out, uh, The Courage to be Free, which actually happens to be the number one seller on Amazon. Uh, that apparently does not mean it is well written, according to a review in the New York Times, which called it courageously free of anything that resembles charisma or a discernible sense of humor. So uh, I guess uh, mixed reviews, but somewhat popular. Uh, he's also visiting Iowa, Nevada, New Hampshire, and possibly South Carolina in the first half of March, according to Maggie Haberman at the Times. Uh, I think we know the significance of those states. So I, uh, my first question, Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno, is if we effectively are already in the midst of a Republican presidential primary battle. Yeah, don't tell anyone, though, Jack. It's a secret. We're in the invisible <laughs> stage. We absolutely are. And, you know, the book, and I think, you know, it, mixed is probably a generous description. That was a pretty scathing New York Times review of the book. But you could see in the book the outlines of his campaign, and you can see in the, his, you know, uh, his in appearances, like the one on Mark Levine on Fox, what he's trying to do. Somebody said his motto is Make America Florida, and that really does seem to be what he is after. He wants to use the legislation and the work he's done as governor to push forward and make those cases to the American public that we can do this in the United States writ large. And I think, you know, you talking about the Disney bill that he just signed yesterday is a perfect example of what he'd like to do vis-a-vis -vis corporate America, which is a, you know, a real change from where Republicans used to be. And even DeSantis was at the beginning of his career. He no longer wants to talk about small government, but taking on corporations and using the state to do that. So the book, it, it may not be the most well-written book in the world, but it does, you know, really represent where he stands at this point in his career and what he hopes to do in his presidential run. Well, Jeannie, that's an important point. And the, the phrase that Governor DeSantis used, the corporate kingdom has come down, uh, really struck me. Rick, what does Ron DeSantis say about the Republicans, Republican Party's stance toward corporate America? Yeah, he really flips the script on it. Um, you know, he he talks about how important executive powers are in his book, and 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 obviously, you know, being the chief executive of Florida, uh, it sort of brings you right into his thinking about how he is going to be president, and and he he views his role to actually police private businesses in America. I mean, it it is it explains why he's taken the approach he's taken on companies like Disney, and it really does kind of, you know, make the point uh, that him as chief executive of government, whether it's Florida or the country, knows better what the business community should be doing than the business community does. It is a real change in Republican orthodoxy as it relates to free markets and the independence of corporate America. Well, and I, you know, I think DeSantis is a, a very interesting case study, not only to pin this on uh, this back and forth between him and Disney, but, you know, you see a, a House vote on this ESG bill. Uh, 
limiting the the move by the Biden administration to allow uh, retirement fund managers to take uh, environmental factors and so on uh, into account in their investment. Uh, simpler question, though, than the identity of the Republican Party. Uh, Rick, I'm curious. I, I saw an Emerson poll out today uh, on a theoretical Republican presidential primary. It had Trump at 55 percent, DeSantis at 25 percent. There is a a clear gap there. I I mean, is DeSantis a strong candidate if and when he actually becomes a candidate? Yeah, I I think you got to keep from falling in love with polls this early. Uh, Donald Trump, obviously, having served as president for four years, has 100 percent name ID. Uh, Arguably, anybody outside of Florida, if you really know anything about Ron DeSantis, it would be uh, a stretch, right? Uh, And so the only polling that would probably be worth – worth it is, you know, how would the Florida primary work if everybody was running against Ron DeSantis for the nomination? Um, the reality is we're a long way from knowing, one, what is Trump's vulnerability to the field and how does uh, Ron DeSantis rack up to that field, including against Donald Trump? And, 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 and this isn't even started, right? I mean, Ron DeSantis is going to use the new book, you know, to get around to these new states, you know, as you described earlier, Iowa, New Hampshire, places like that. And, and, and he's going to get a taste for what uh, life is like outside of Florida, where he's been quite successful. So can he replicate that success in, in these other states? We'll see. But uh, to, to look at a horse race poll right now is, is pretty deceiving. Um, and, and even uh, at a state like Iowa, or New Hampshire, or South Carolina, where there will be early primaries in February of 2024, uh, there's not enough name ID to really give it a fair shot. So we'll get down to the horse race polls, I'm sure, at some point in time, but uh, it's probably not really a good way to look at it from this point. That's a good point to keep in mind as we look at this uh, DeSantis travel through the early states. But let's take it from Iowa slash Nevada slash Tallahassee back to D.C. Uh, there's there's one thing I, I wanted to flag for you guys. Uh, House Majority Leader Steve Scalise was asked today about Speaker Kevin McCarthy's decision to give hundreds of hours of security footage from the January 6th, uh, 2021 insurrection at the Capitol to Tucker Carlson of Fox News specifically. Uh, here's that exchange between Scalise and a reporter. Can you talk, uh, I guess, more broadly about your thinking and releasing the tapes, and then if you would consider releasing them broadly to all media? Yeah, and Speaker McCarthy has talked about that, is that it will be ultimately released uh, to all media, and, you know, that's a process that's ongoing right now. All media, I, I, I'm curious if that is um, damage control after questions about why this specifically went to Tucker Carlson, questions about releasing it uh, at all, uh, some vague answers on whether they ran this past or, or coordinated with the Capitol Police. Jeannie, what do you make of the, the significance of going to Tucker Carlson first and now something else is in the works? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's very difficult because it seems to have been, and, and this is uh, what we're hearing speculatively, is that he, this was payback for the speaker's vote. And we heard people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and others applaud Kevin McCarthy for giving this to Tucker Carlson. But their argument for releasing the tape was transparency. And if that's your argument, you don't release it to one individual or one media outlet. And let's not forget, this wasn't even released to all of Fox. It was released just to the, you know, just to Tucker Carlson. So they have to now, if they're going to make a transparency argument, release it to the 
rest of the media, and they should do that. But of course, they really need to keep security top of mind because the reality is the January 6th committee had this, and they were very careful not to release anything that could make the uh, you know the complex and, and anybody in Congress, including reporters like yourself, less secure. And that's critically important. Well, transparency, security, there's a whole conversation to be had there. There's one other point, though. All media aside, this whole exchange does seem to be about McCarthy and Tucker Carlson. Uh, I mean, Rick, do we know much about it? There's a back and forth there. Carlson's hit uh, McCarthy on, on the airwaves at times. What is their relationship? You know, look, they've known each other for virtually their entire career. And so there's there's uh, plenty of relationship there to back on, bank on. I must admit, I'm somewhat confused as to what Tar- Tucker Carlson's um, motivations are to want to see all the tape. Uh, we know from the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News that there's been a lot of skepticism by people like Tucker Carlson around all the events that led up to January 6th. And so is this an attempt to uh, 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 embarrass Donald Trump by displaying displaying uh, unseen footage that makes it worse than it was? It is, a, uh, is it an attempt to try and uh, manipulate history and tell a different story than what the January 6th committee? I mean, honestly, it makes no sense to me as to uh, why this whole conversation between Tucker Carlson and, and Speaker McCarthy has occurred. Uh, and, and of course, if you give it to one, you have to give it to all. It's public uh, ownership of the, uh, of the tape. Uh, this is not owned by Kevin McCarthy. It's owned by the American public. And, and anybody who asks for a FOIA request uh, is going to probably get it, uh, regardless of what Kevin McCarthy thinks is the right thing to do. Funny enough, uh, a FOIA request to Congress or to the Capitol Police might not be quite as successful as uh, other places. But coming up, we will uh, speak to Jody Arrington, the new Budget Committee Chair, Republican from Texas, on the latest on uh, the debt limit, the budget he's crafting, uh, and those negotiations. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 5 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. 
Headline on the Bloomberg terminal earlier today, McCarthy still waiting for Biden to resume debt ceiling talks. I'm curious if anything is actually happening. It's been about a month since we uh, heard of a, a meeting or a phone call between those two. Maybe it's not publicly facing. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick from Bloomberg Government filling in for Joe Matthew. And I'm joined on the phone by a, a member of Congress who, you know, if anybody is really working on this, even if potentially uh, McCarthy and Biden aren't talking right now, it would probably be this person, Congressman Jody Arrington, the Republican from Texas, who is the new chair of the House Budget Committee, uh, an enthusiast on budget issues in Congress. Uh, Congressman, very glad to have you with us today. Uh, simplest question I can ask you, on the debt limit, is anything happening? A lot more is happening than uh, meets the public eye. We're having conversations with Democrat colleagues, and uh, I'm sure that Speaker McCarthy's having even his own separate uh, conversation. So, um, look, we have been very clear we have to have fiscal reforms and some common sense spending controls if we're going to expand the line of credit um, uh, to any Washington politician, whether it's this president uh, or whatever the party. We're $31 trillion in debt. This debt ceiling's a check on the debt and its impact on the financial health of our country. And that health is in decline and our path fiscal path is unsustainable. And I, I find that many of my colleagues on the Democrat uh, side of the aisle, rank and file uh, colleagues, um, they get that. So we just have to get to something in writing and something that we can agree on and show the American people we can do what they have to do when they're experiencing uh, financial uh, challenges, which is tighten our belt and reevaluate our spending habits. I, I know you had a bill uh, later last year on discretionary spending caps. Given that something big on entitlement solvency is off the table with regard to the debt limit, does this do these conversations basically center on a, a discretionary spending cap regime? That's a great question. Um, well, the spending cap uh, uh, proposals, and there are I have one, but I'm, I'm sure there are a number of uh, proposals to ex basically extend the caps that we had in place for the previous 10 years. This was also negotiated, by the way, by then Vice President uh, Joe Biden um, uh, as a part of a debt ceiling negotiation deal. So that we there is precedence for fiscal reforms coming out of these negotiations. Um, so, so spending caps is one of them. I think we need to right-size and reset our baseline on 22 spending levels because we are $400 billion over what we were spending on the discretionary side or what CBO projected we would be spending in 23. So there's excess spending, there's unnecessary spending, and we've got to address that. Um, and uh, that's going to be uh, sort of the anchor to our 10-year uh, long-term budget proposal coming out of the budget committee. So that's one. But there are uh, there are mandatory reforms. Uh, for example, uh, reinstating Bill Clinton-era work requirements to means-tested welfare programs. If you just did that for, for example, 
the supplemental nutrition or food stamp program, which, by the way, is going to be negotiated in the broader context of a farm bill. If we did that, that's tens of billions of dollars in savings and fewer people trapped in dependence and poverty uh, as a result. So those are and then you've got one time spending, uh, Jack, like uh, rescinding the unspent COVID monies. That's almost one hundred billion dollars. Then there's the loan cancellation, which is upwards of $450 billion. There's plenty of opportunities to include reducing our spending either one time or over the 10-year horizon with spending caps. So if you were to get that kind of uh, th- those kinds of concessions from Democrats, uh, and this is something else I, I know you've legislated on. You had a bill, I, I believe, with Scott Peters uh, at one point. Um, but I'm curious if Republicans more broadly are open to a deal that would permanently end these standoffs or at least reduce them, something that actually changes the legal structure of the debt limit. Is that something that's on the table right now? Well, look, I think – I think uh, other than Social Security and Medicare, which have been taken off the table, um, we're open to discussing uh, any number of of reform ideas. Uh, The one that you're referring to that I introduced with Scott Peters uh, basically says we will we won't permanently remove the debt ceiling, but we will waive it if we have a debt to GDP target that reduces uh, debt to GDP by 5% or more, and then it allows for real debate and consideration on a number of uh, budget process reform and spending reform proposals. We don't do enough of that. We don't we don't spend the time or the focus of this body uh, on either side on these issues. So Scott Peters and I have a more of a process-oriented reform, but yes, we would consider things like that, but at the end of the day, um, process reform is good. We need it. The current process is broken and functional, and the outcomes prove that. But we need to start bending the curve on spending, uh, and that has to be an element of this debt ceiling deal if we're going to, like I said, if we're going to raise the debt ceiling and and give this president and, and the folks here in Washington a new line of credit. Right. Well, even before we see a debt limit deal, unless it comes very surprisingly quickly, uh, it sounds like you're working on a House Republican budget resolution. Uh, when are when are we going to see that budget? You know, you need to quit asking these tough questions. Like, <laughs> uh, you don't think it's tough. It is tough. Look, the president submitted his proposal or will next week. It's, it's 30 days late, uh, which is putting a little bit of a drag on our process because we have to assess and analyze his and we'll probably have a hearing on it. Um, but we'll we'll have it in the next 30 days, uh, I, I presume. We've got um, the framework for that budget already put together. We have, we have to get to 218 ultimately, so there's a difference in getting a budget proposal, a long-term 10-year budget proposal out of committee and getting it uh, out of the chamber. So we're trying to engage members to to do it right in a very um, truncated period of time. But I feel good about where we are, and um, uh, and, it, and and I think we've got a great committee that represents the perspectives across the spectrum and in different caucuses, and that's important because they're very representative of our very diverse group of members in our Republican conference. 
Right. Well, I don't ask you about the timing of your budget to, you know, complain and look at my watch. Um, but I'm curious <laughs> as the it, because as you mentioned, the president's budget proposal is supposed to come next Thursday. It is late. Uh, that kind of sets things back, assuming you care about the president's budget proposal. Um, I, I mean, when the president sends that to the Hill in a House controlled by Republicans, does that just go to the trash? Or what? to what extent do you really look at that and, and find value in what you think is coming from the president in his budget proposal? Well, well, I think the value is what the president has stated about budgets, which he has said, I think repeatedly, that budgets are really an expression of one's priorities and one's values. And so I think it's important for us to spend time uh, looking through his budget and evaluating his priorities and values reflected in uh, in how he would resource the federal government, and then contrast that with with our Republican uh, vision and framework for long term budget, and even the new uh, anchor of fiscal year twenty four at twenty two spending levels. I think that's the the value, and is to let the American people know the difference in principle. There's a difference in values and priorities, and those are sometimes best expressed in budget proposals. So it does take time to go through that so that we can uh, accurately represent what the what we're proposing. And uh, as I bring up the president, he said uh, in uh, Virginia Beach today that House Republicans, in his words, are aiming to cut Medicaid. Um, one, I want to see if you have a, a response to that. But specifically, what kind of assumptions uh, are you going to policy assumptions are you going to put into your budget resolution about Medicaid when you have that out? Well, we haven't voted on it, and I'm not going to presume on my committee members or my conference. I'll just tell you, we have a very different view of what works in healthcare to give access, to bend the spending curve, to reduce spending in healthcare in general, which is a huge driver of our spending and our national debt. Not just in 10 years, but in 30 years, it's a it's a significant portion of it. So, you know, we want less government control, government planning, uh, government-run health care. We think that's inefficient. We think it's less access. It's more expensive. We saw it with Obamacare. Deductibles went up. The co-pays went up. Um, and uh, we want more competition, more choice uh, from patients. We want more innovation and freedom to the states. And I think all that's going to, you know, this isn't new. It's a philosophical difference between Democrats' view of health care and markets and what patients get to, to choose for their families. And that'll be reflected in our budget. And there are certainly savings in health care reforms that make not only the, the process here in Washington more effective and efficient, but just reduce spending because you have a healthier more competitive healthcare market competing for families and patients across the country. That's that's the goal. Well, one other question on some of the big picture stuff. I, I understand, you know, it's been made very clear uh, that the big picture talks on entitlement solvency are not happening as part of the debt limit negotiations. But do you see an opportunity to have that conversation on Social Security and Medicare solvency? 
in any way? Or ha- has everybody kind of gotten uh, burned by touching the third rail and that's going silent now? Well, I do think that the political reality of being burned touching the third rail has put us all lawmakers and leaders of our great country in a precarious situation. And I think the way it's been dealt with in the past uh, is we have a we, we get Republicans, earnest, sincere, thoughtful Republicans and Democrats who want to address the insolvency issue, which faces both Social Security and Medicare in this 10 year window. And as your listeners know, and you know, on the Social Security side, if if we don't do anything and it's and it, and if we get to the ten-year insolvency, the beneficiary will take a twenty percent cut immediately. So we've got to do what Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill did and get Republicans and Democrats together, find the common ground. Nobody will be one hundred percent happy. The way to strengthen the program, save it for future seniors, not just the seniors of today. That's how it's worked in the past. That's been the, the mechanism and strategy, and I, I, I believe that's the, the strategy that applies to Okay. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for, for joining us. That was Congressman Jody Arrington, the new House Budget Committee chairman, uh, finding himself at the center of a a series of important issues. Um, A lot to get into there with our panel, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shianzano, our Bloomberg politics contributors. I'm trying to think of even where to start. I I think one major takeaway, not to beat the dead horse, uh, is on what he described as the political reality of being burned by touching the third rail. There was uh, the conversation about maybe uh, getting into to a Social Security, Medicare, solvency conversation with the debt limit. Uh, Anyone who watched the State of the Union knows that is absolutely not happening. Uh, In fact, uh, earlier today, the president spoke in Virginia Beach uh, and and referenced everything that happened between him and House Republicans uh, on entitlement solvency. Everybody who says we're not going to cut Medicare or Social Security when I asked them to join us and reject the cuts, Medicare, wasn't it something? They all stood up. All stood up. They're all on camera. (laughs) Got all their pictures. Like I said, I believe in conversion. So clearly, President Biden. Uh, got what he wanted in ruling out um, ruling out uh, an entitlement solvency conversation in the debt limit. I, 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 I'm curious what our takeaways are on where that leaves us going forward, uh, whether they can someday set up a committee. There are deadlines about five to 12 years from now on Social Security and Medicare. Rick, what do you think the uh, the the outcome is from this exchange that has gone back and forth between Biden and the House Republicans on ruling out anything in the near term on entitlements. Yeah, other than a few renegades, there hasn't really been a, a real discussion in the House, either in, in the House GOP or the Senate GOP, about touching the third rail, as you like to put it. Uh, but that being said, I thought that uh, Congressman Arrington had a very constructive point of view that at some point and probably after the debt limit conversation occurs, uh, because cuts in the federal budget right now shouldn't include those items because you don't really have the time to do them in a way that uh, minimizes any negative impact. 
but to, to get together with the uh, leadership of both the Republican and Democratic Party and the president and start talking about how to shore up these important entitlement programs uh, and not put so much pressure on the federal budget by letting them just run amok. And uh, using the uh, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill example of two powerful figures, you know, setting aside the political dimension, meaning that the president shouldn't go out and ridicule Republicans for thinking about reforming these institutions, then I think you probably could get something done because I think there is enough uh, political goodwill out there to try and fix this on somebody's watch. And if it doesn't happen on this president's, it will have to happen in the next ones. Well, with that being set aside, there is now a lot of focus on the discretionary side, the agency budgets, not the entitlements, uh, but not defense. And uh, as I've talked to conservatives, also not veterans issues. Um, so, Jeannie, I, I mean, it sounds to me like they're narrowing this down to a, a smaller and smaller pool of areas where uh, Congressman Arrington needs to find cuts. I mean, do you see it as realistic to balance the budget or, or accomplish any of these fiscally conservative things they want to do if they're not touching entitlements, not touching defense, not touching veterans, and presumably all sorts of other local things that they like? Yeah, I, I mean, it's just head scratching to imagine how they get there when they've already taken so much off the table. I mean, we heard from Mitch McConnell, you know, defense spending off the table. You just mentioned veterans. I mean, you go down the list and it gets narrower and narrower. And that, I think, politically is what the president is trying to hammer home. He's trying to force Republicans to say, OK, you want to do this. You need to put forward what you're going to cut. And of course, the first person to put that forward is usually the one on the chopping block. And so we will see the president's budget next week. But he was hammering them today, expanding from his Social Security, Medicare, and now it's Obamacare and Medicaid. And of course, doing it in the district of a Republican where he won the district. And, and you know, he really feels that he is going to be targeting these more persuadable Republicans right. like Jen Kiggins in this Virginia district. So it's going to be a political bloodbath as they go through this process. I right. think. Thank you again to our guests, Rick Davis, Jeannie Sheen, Zeno, Congressman Arrington, Sandy Baum, Greg Storr. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.